if you are tempted with Candy Crush or your account or whatever else it might be doing on your phone, get rid of it now. It'll be there after the service. But let's just concentrate on what we're doing. Let's ask the Lord to help us and we need to make uh, practical points to that. So the stuff that's going to distract you, let, let, let's get rid of it. We want to focus on this chapter 20. Last week we were in uh, the, the latter part of chapter 19 and we were looking at the events of the cross and we were reminded that around the cross we saw the depravity, the sinfulness of humanity. We saw the wickedness of the Roman soldiers and, and physically what they did to Christ. We saw the, the horror of the religious people and what they did to Christ. And if you look elsewhere on the scriptures, you, you see how even the, 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 those on the left and the right of Christ who were being crucified with him at the beginning were both laughing and jeering at him. And that's what the crowds were doing around about. And we saw the horror of the cross. And then we looked at the cross and we realized that what Christ was doing was paying the price for the sins of his people. God's wrath was being poured out upon Christ. And it's at the cross that God maintains his perfect righteousness and yet forgives our sins. God cannot just say, I forgive you. Sin's too great for that, and God is too just for that. And so he can't just say, I forgive you. He needs to deal with the sin. And that's what Christ did on the cross. The, the events of the cross uh, and, and the miracles that surround the cross, you may just think that they're only recorded in God's word, the Bible. But there are other historical accounts from that time and a little bit after that underline what happened then. And around 137 AD, that's about 100 years later, there was a Greek historian, Pilagon, and he wrote a history book of, of, of the previous century. And this was his entry for the fourth year of 202 ND Olympia, which basically in our modern day language is 33 AD. That's the year that Christ died. And this was his entry. He said there was a great eclipse of the sun and that it became night in the sixth hour of the day. That's noon. So the stars even appeared in the heavens. There was a great earthquake in Bithynia and many things were overturned in Nicaea. This was a historian writing about that time. And what God's word tells us is there recorded in a history book. The darkness that came. And what a darkness that was. It was a darkness that was so dark that you could see the stars. And I don't know if you've seen an eclipse of the sun. But when you get an eclipse of the sun, it goes eerily dark and the, the birds go quiet. But you don't see the stars like it's night. And, and this historian fills in that little gap and was underlying the magnitude of what happened. Darkness for three hours. 
And where he was, and where he, well, where he wasn't there at the time, but the person who recorded it, who saw this, saw the stars in the heavens, because that was what the darkness was like. And that's what happened on the Good Friday, and that's what we were thinking about last Sunday. Uh, And we move quickly on to Easter Sunday, don't we? And and, and you may have seen some of the social media posts that that I've seen over this last couple of days. And on on Friday, people are are saying, Sunday is coming. This isn't just another Friday. To those who believe Jesus in Jesus Christ, we know Sunday is coming. And so there's an expectancy of Easter Sunday, and we look forward to Easter Sunday, and we come expectantly because we know the tomb is empty. And we're excited because we know how the end, the story ends. But in coming Easter Sunday like that, we lose something. I don't know if you've ever watched a film or a series or maybe watched a football match. Not live, but you've seen it before. Uh, Or you've read the book before the film. And and there's someone else with you in, in the same room and as they're watching the match, they don't know the end and they're on the edge of their seat because of all the tension and you're sitting there relaxed because you know your team is going to win. Or there's an incredible twist in the plot and, and your friend's saying, I don't know who did it. I don't know how it happened. And you're thinking, well, I don't. Because you've seen it before or you've read the book. And that's so often how we come to this Easter Sunday story. We, we come to it and, and, and we rush into it and we, 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 we see the risen Christ and the risen Christ is important. But I think we miss something and, and I want us to to go back, and I want us to see it in a different light this Sunday. And I want us to start with a piece of detail that John gives. John, as he writes this, this book, as he writes this gospel account, he throws little details in there. And, and we can just brush over them. But the reality is that these details really help us to understand the magnitude of what's going on. It's a beautifully written gospel account. It should be because the Holy Spirit inspired it. But I want us just to take a moment in that first verse. Yes, we know Mary Magdalene came to the tomb early. But I want us to focus just for a moment, for a while, on the fact that it was still dark. It was still dark. She came to the tomb while it was still dark. And before we emphasize and look at that moment, I want us to go back a little bit, a little back in, in time, a little back to the upper room. And Jesus has just washed all the disciples' feet. And and they're a bit perplexed and they can't really understand what's going on. And Jesus tells them that they need to be servants. And then they have this last supper together. The Passover that becomes our Lord's Supper in the future. 
And he looks around that room of those 12 disciples and he declares that one of them is going to betray him. You can imagine the intake of breath and the tension that's mounting in the room and they want to find out who it is and and, and Jesus points out that it is Judas. And when this happens in, in John 13, 30, It tells us that Judas immediately went out and it was night. It was factual, it was night. And and, and the original word there had its everyday meaning of night. It was nighttime, that was the fact. But there's more to this. You see, as Judas went out, he went out into the night. He went out into the darkness. And that word, as I say, normally, often in its everyday use meant night, but it also meant the time of death. It also was used metaphorically for the time of deeds of sin and shame. And the darkness is coming over. And you can imagine that if this was a film, that the, the, the screen would grow darker and, and the background music would become menacing. And, and you get a sense of the darkness coming around Christ. And Christ is troubled and Judas goes out into the darkness. John is painting that picture and it's there for a purpose. And and we know that when Jesus was betrayed, when Jesus was betrayed by Judas with that kiss, it was in the darkness. We've read in chapter 18 and verse 3 that when they came, they came with lanterns and torches and weapons. They had lanterns and torches and weapons because it was in darkness. And this darkness is resembling what's going on here. Christ, God's Son, the Holy One, the Perfect One, the One without sin, was entering a realm of deep, deep darkness. And all the Gospel accounts, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, that they all have some essential facts of the crucifixion and, and the story that are the same. And and they all state this, that there was darkness over all the land. From midday, when the sun would be at its brightest, to three o'clock in the afternoon, there was darkness. And it was at that time, when Mary Magdalene and John and a few others, along with the whole crowd, were there. And as Mary comes to the tomb, we need to remember that she had witnessed that darkness. She was there. We need to remember that she had witnessed the crucifixion. And and you know that once you've seen something, you cannot unsee it. Maybe you've seen a traumatic accident. Maybe you, you watch something on, on, on YouTube that you, you shouldn't have watched. And that, that image and that thing is there in your mind. And that's where 
Mary would have been. The smells, the sounds would have been etched on her mind. And in those early days, the image would never have been far from her. Seared upon her memory. I don't think Mary had any trouble getting up early that morning. I don't think she'd have been enjoying sleep. And in the darkness where there was no electric light that she could have switched on, in the darkness when she wanted to think of happier things, all she could see in her mind's eye was the suffering Christ on the cross. I'm sure you've heard some of the traumatic eyewitness accounts and the horrors that some of the people in Ukraine have gone through. There are those horrendous stories of, of, of people who have violently lost their loved ones in front of their own eyes. And I know that some of you have come from violent parts of the world where violence has spilled over and loved ones see a violent act, a taking of their own loved one in front of them. And and our hearts go out for people who've gone through that. And it's an unimaginable suffering that they have there in their mind's eye. And that is the kind of darkness that Mary is in. You see, she's not just seen someone die. She's not just seen someone brutally murdered and killed. Jesus was not just a someone to her. Jesus had totally and utterly changed her life. You see, this was the Mary that Jesus had cast seven demons out of. I think some of you Africans have got a far better idea of what it looks like for someone to have seven demons in them. But it's a reality. And it's a horror. And her life had been given back to her. Her life had been taken over and destroyed by these seven demons. And the Lord Jesus Christ comes on the scene and the Lord Jesus Christ casts them out. We don't know the details of how he did it, but we know that he did it. And it reminds us of the power of Christ. But Mary couldn't see the power of Christ anymore. Because Christ had died in front of her eyes. She'd been murdered. She'd been brutalized. And we can only imagine what the horror of her life was like. Before Jesus. And the one who had saved her. The one who had transformed her. The one that had shown her kindness when others had despised her and pushed her away. Was the one that she'd heard the nails Going through his body. The one who she looked upon and she could barely recognize as the Christ that loved her.
And I'm sure that when she wasn't thinking and seeing flashbacks looping in her mind of the death of her Savior, she was thinking, what if the demons come back? What if my old life happens again? Who's going to stop them now? What would her life be like? Now her Jesus, her Abani, is dead. Mary did not understand at this time. But what she had witnessed that day earlier was God pouring out his holy wrath and his anger on the sinless Christ so that the price of the sins of his people could be paid for. In that moment when Mary was looking on, she saw something of the full horrors of hell. When she heard Christ cry out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? She'd have sensed something of what hell and the punishment of sin is really like. But what we forget as we come with Mary to the tomb in this story, is she is not coming to the tomb to reach and see a resurrected Jesus. She is coming to this tomb to anoint a mutilated, dead body of her, Rabboni, her teacher, who she had seen killed. I think that's why John says it was still dark. But in this darkness, as the dawn is coming, something amazes her. And she saw that the stone had been taken away from the tomb. Mark tells us in his gospel account that the two Marys are going there and and when they went to the tomb, on the way to the tomb, they were concerned and they're chatting to each other. And in Mark 16, verse 3, it says this. This is what they said. They said, who will roll away the stone for us from the entrance of the tomb? The stone was rolled over. There was a seal set on the stone. There was a Roman guard around it. And, and this stone being there reminds us of the great divide that death brings. De death is for keeps. Death is, is something horrendous. Death. As a close friend of mine just recently told me, is abominable. It's an abomination. You see, when God creates, Mankind, when God made Adam and Eve, we weren't made to die. 
We were made to have an eternal relationship with him. We were in the image of God. And then sin came in. And sin separated us from God. And sin introduced death. And death is for keeps. And death is permanent. And death separates the living from the dead. And this stone was keeping the two things separate. You know what, friends? It seems like nowadays we're quite happy with a stone in the way of death. We don't want to be reminded of death. We don't like the notion of death. In fact, people don't die anymore. They pass away. They go to sleep. They're resting. And there would have been this huge stone that was rolled over the tomb. And the stone was easy to put in place. It was designed that way. But it had been difficult, if not nigh impossible, to open. And as I said earlier, there were guards guarding it. And there's official seal on it. And these ladies who were wanting, and Mary was wanting to honor this Christ that had done so much for her. And she was bringing the ointments and the, 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 the herbs and the spices to anoint his body with. And they were wondering, how can we get in there? And then they look through the darkness and they see, and she sees the stone had been taken away. The stone is no longer there. The guards were no longer there. The seal couldn't keep it closed. It had gone. What does Mary do? Well, she runs to find Peter and John to tell them. And she, she must have known where they were. She gets there. She tells them. And the passage tells us that the two ran back. John was faster. He might have been fitter. He might have been younger. I don't know why, but he, he got there first. And John, as he gets there first and he comes to the tomb, the stone isn't there. And, and, he, and he, he, he braces himself. He, he takes a peek into the tomb. And we can only imagine what was going through his head because he didn't know that Christ was risen. What he was expecting was two things. Two things were going through his head. Would he see Jesus Christ's mutilated body? Or had it been stolen? And what was worse? And by now the, the, the dawn is happening and it's becoming a little more lighter. And through that light that's coming across the world, John looks in and he sees no body where the body had been laid. And in the place of the body where the body had been laid were the grave clothes, the linen. He didn't go in. It seems as though just moments later the impetuous Peter arrives. Perhaps he is out of breath. Perhaps his shoes didn't fit so well, but he, he gets there. And Peter being Peter, he doesn't hesitate. He goes straight in, straight into this tomb. And what does he see? 
verse 6 at the end of it, he sees the linen cloths lying there. And the face cloth which had been on Jesus' head was not lying with the linen cloth, but it was folded up in a place by itself. And you can imagine by this time, Peter's mind is whirring. And, 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 and John is a loss, and John goes in, and, and they, they, they both see and experience the empty tomb together. They see that there is no body of Christ there, but they don't understand. They don't understand what's going on. Later, many years later, when John wrote his account with hindsight, John knew that Jesus, through the prophecies of the Old Testament, and what Jesus had said, he would rise again from the dead. But at that moment, whether it was through the grief of what had happened, whether it was through the lack of sleep, whether it was through not thinking, whether it was because they hadn't really matter, they were still in darkness at that time. And these two men left. And they left empty. And there was nothing there for them. And they went back home. And they left Mary. Or Mary stayed, whichever way you want to look at it. And she was totally broken. And she was totally empty. And as if things get worse for her in the thought that her saviour, this one who had changed her life, was dead. She couldn't even honour his body because in her mind it had been stolen. And, and grief does strange things to people and I think she probably wanted to be to the, the closest place that she knew where Jesus had been and that was the tomb where he'd been laid and that's where he'd been and so she, she's there weeping outside this tomb. And in this darkness, in this emptiness, in this shock, she decides to have a look in the tomb. And as she looks, she sees that the body of Christ is not there. But where the body of Christ should have been laid, to a huge shock, there were two angels. And I just want us to think about this for a moment. The angels looked at her, and the angels wanted to know why she was weeping. Have you ever wondered why the angels asked such a ridiculous question? It wasn't ridiculous to the angels. They knew that Jesus had risen. They knew that. Why is Mary crying when Jesus has risen? Why are you crying? But she was weeping because she didn't know he was risen at that moment. She's weeping because she thought he'd been stolen. She's weeping because she was empty and in darkness and her whole world had fallen in around her. And she just asked these disciples where Jesus was laying. And then as she turns, the passage tells us that Jesus is there. And she doesn't recognize him. Maybe it's because her 
is a full of tears. Maybe it's because the light isn't good enough yet. It certainly was because she wasn't expecting to see Jesus because Jesus in her mind is dead. And Jesus said to her in verse 15, Jesus says, woman, why are you weeping? Whom are you seeking? And her grieving logic thinks this must be the gardener. And so she asks to find where Jesus is. And then we have these wonderfully special words of Jesus recorded in verse 60. Jesus said to her, Mary. And she turned and said to him in Aramaic, Rabboni, which means teacher. It's a total game changer. Everything has changed. Jesus is there, and Jesus has spoken to her, and Jesus has called her by her name. And, and as if nothing happened, she turns round and calls him by the name that he was known by, Rabboni. And her emptiness and her darkness have evaporated. And my mind flashes back to the beginning of the Gospel of John. And in verse 5 of John 1, it tells us this. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. She'd been in dark, dark, dark darkness, but the light had not gone out. The devil had thought he had had the victory, but Christ's light did not go out. Mary could not unsee or forget the last few days, but they no longer matter. Jesus has done the impossible. Jesus has conquered death. Jesus has beaten sin. Jesus has smashed the devil's head. Jesus has gained the victory. And Jesus is in front of her. And Jesus has said, Mary, Can you imagine how she felt? I think we can only slightly think about it. We can't get close, but I'm sure just what emotion was she going through? I guess she would never want to leave his side again. If, if you've seen someone go through something like that and come back like that, you're not going to want them to go out of your sight, are you? If, if a parent has lost their child, then ever since that moment afterwards, they're ever so much more watchful to make sure they don't lose them. Or perhaps if you've uh, a father that's been away for a long time and he comes home, the children will sit next to him and they won't leave him and he'll, he'll go to the toilet, the bathroom, and they'll be all outside waiting for him to come out again because they don't want to, their dad to leave them again. And I don't think she must have wanted to cling to him, not to let him go. And in verse 17, and this is a very difficult verse to understand, but I think it makes sense in the light of that. Jesus said to her, Do not cling to me, for I have not yet ascended to the Father, but I go to my brothers, but go to my brothers and say to them, I am ascended to my Father and your Father, to my God and to your God. And your God. And, and the best explanation that I've 
heard is that Jesus is telling her that she, he won't be with him in person forever. She can't cling to him. He's going. He's got a work to do. And uh, maybe for those who want to talk about that more, we can do that in, in, in the Zoom time or some other time. But now I want to focus on what she could grasp easily. You see, we don't want to miss this. I think sometimes we, we get the difficult bit and we miss the wonder of what really is here. And this is the wonder. Jesus is saying to his disciples via Mary, she's a messenger. Jesus is ascending to my father, now get it, and your father. Jesus is ascending to my God and your God. You see, Mary didn't just get her teacher back. Mary was in front, the savior of the world. And those demons will never, ever come back to Mary because she is Christ's. And just as Jesus and the Father have that relationship, Mary now has a relationship with God the Father in the same way as Jesus has. Jesus has been transformed from being the teacher to Mary's big brother. Do you get that? And that is what it is for us. This is what the resurrection means to us. This is what the empty tomb means to us. Those of us that see and believe and know this for ourselves and are trusting in the Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus is our big brother. And God is our heavenly father. And that barrier of death and sin that stops us from having a relationship with God the Father has been smashed by Christ on the cross. Because Christ took the whole horrors and torment of the punishment that he deserves and ate it up. And now, those words are not just for the disciples that Mary went back to relay them to. Those words are for us. Jesus has ascended to his father. And his father is our father. Jesus has ascended to the right hand of God and that God is our God. Because of Jesus, her relationship and the disciples' relationship with God has changed. Their relationship with God has become like that that Jesus has with God. Jesus' father has become their father. Jesus' God has become their God. The crucifixion and the resurrection of Christ mean that the disciples' relationship with God has changed. The resurrection proves that the sin that separates us from God has been dealt with. The sin that means that we are spiritually dead has been dealt with. And they are now part of God's family. And we too can be part of God's family. And Mary saw this and has believed. And friends, as we come 
to this empty tomb. We need to come like Mary was, emptied of herself. We need to come Mary did, understanding the full horrors of what our sin deserved, and she saw that on the cross. And as we look into the empty tomb, and when we see the risen Savior, and when we believe that Jesus is our Savior through the eyes of faith, we can say, we can say, we have seen the Lord. That's what Mary said. I've seen the Lord. That's what the disciples said a little bit later. We have seen the Lord. We, with our physical eyes, have not seen the Lord, but through our eyes of faith and what is in his word and how the Holy Spirit works. We have seen the Lord. And when we know that Jesus Christ has died for our sins, and when we know that he rose from the dead in victory, it is that time. And it's at that moment, and it may be now for the first time, that we realize that Jesus' Father is our Father. We're adopted. We've been brought into the family. It's maybe at that time we realize that God is our God, and we are God's children. And that's the amazing transaction that happened. And it was got to see it first. And we see it through Mary's experience. And then we also know from verses 19 through to verse 23 that Jesus came to see the disciples. And and here are these disciples. They were hiding. The disciples were hiding in fear of the Jews. The door is locked. It had been like a house of mourning. There was lots of gossip going on. Who took the body? What's going on here? What's happening? What are the Jews going to do next? There have been conspiracy theories running through their minds. There would just been this great darkness and emptiness upon them. And they probably kept going up to John and Peter and saying, was the tomb really empty? What did you see? And, and, and they were probably fed up of relaying the story of what they saw. And then just in the midst, no knock at the door, no opening the door, the door was locked, just in the midst, Christ comes. And he looks at them and says, peace be with you. He didn't say, you cowards, you scaredy cats. He didn't say, why did you all run away? He didn't say, where were you in my hour of need? He looks at these band of beleaguered brothers and sisters together, they're hidden away. And he says what they needed to hear, peace be with you. And this isn't the peace that's needed in the Ukraine to stop a battle. This is peace, not with Russia and Ukraine. This is not peace in this world between warring factions. This is not peace in a household between a husband and wife. This is peace between the living God, whose wrath was poured out upon his son, so that we could have that peace. Our sins separate us, but no longer they do. And these brothers then could have peace with God. Through Christ. And he says that to them. Peace be with you. And as the disciples said, they saw the Lord. 
They saw Jesus. They saw their Savior. And in verses 21 to 23, he gives them a job to do. And he sends them into the world. He wants them to point people to God, just as Jesus came here to point people to God. We have been given the job. They were given the job then to point people to God. And this job was too big for them. And this job was too great for them. And Jesus knew and the Holy Spirit was given to them. The Holy Spirit didn't come to them in power like he does at Pentecost because that's when the physical thing actually happened. But there's a a picture here of what is going to happen. And you know what, friends? One of the biggest evidences of the resurrection is that 2,000 years on, here we are in Cyprus. And we're talking about the resurrection. And over that 2,000 years, the beginning of that church, of those 12 disciples, 10 of them, out of the 11 that went on, were martyred for insisting that Christ rose from the dead. And since then, there have been countless others who have given their lives for that. And just in this last century, more people in this last century have been killed and and, and martyred because they are not going to back down on the fact that Christ was crucified and rose from the dead and he is their saviour. And no matter the amount of persecution, God's kingdom is still growing. And how can that be? Because the resurrection is real and the Holy Spirit empowers us to do what we cannot do ourselves. But there's a Thomas. Thomas wasn't there then. You know what? You miss out when you're not with the gathering of friends. I'm going to say that to the camera especially. You miss out when you're not with the gathering of friends. Thomas missed out on that first sighting of Jesus. Where was he? Was he too afraid? Was he ill? Had he got COVID? He certainly hadn't got that. But he wasn't there and he missed out. And when he found the brothers again, they were like, we've seen Jesus. No, you haven't. We have. No, you haven't. We have. I don't believe you. We have seen Jesus. He came. We were sat around and he he just appeared. Yeah, really? And then he makes this statement, unless I see Jesus, and see his wounds, I'm not going to believe it. God's timing and his ways are not ours. Because it's not till eight days later. And they gathered again in that same place. And the same door is locked. Maybe it was because they were still fearful. But Jesus came again. And Thomas is there. And that's God's grace, isn't it? God doesn't write people off because they don't believe. He draws them in his time. And eight days later, Thomas says, after having said, I don't believe until I see, he says, my Lord and my God. There's something special here, isn't there? Because he's identifying God, Jesus, 
in exactly the same way as Jesus told his disciples, didn't he? He said, I am going to my Father who is your Father. I'm going to my God who is your God. And here is Thomas. And what has happened through seeing Jesus, it's all come together. He says, my Lord and my God. Jesus said to him, and I'd love to know the tone of voice. I think there was a twinkle in his eye, I don't know. But as he looked at this man who has declared, my Lord and my God, someone who has believed despite his past unbelief, he says, you have believed because you have seen me. And then the words that bless us so much. Jesus said to him, but he's saying to us now, blessed are those who have not seen and yet believe. Is that you? This morning, are you truly blessed? You may have come here wanting to be blessed. The question I'm having for you is, are you truly blessed? How are you truly blessed? The ones who are truly blessed are those who believe in Jesus. They've not seen him with their physical eyes, but we believe in Jesus because we've seen him through the work of the Holy Spirit and the pages of the Gospel of John and his word in general. You see, some people might think it's a bit strange for John to put the conclusion of his book just immediately after that. But it makes absolute sense because he talks about the many, many miracles and other signs that Jesus had did. And he said there's so many that if they were all written, there would be too many of them. But he has given us these. And why has he given us these in verse 33? These are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing, you may have life in his name. The Easter chick coming out with the egg is a bit silly, but it does remind us of new life. And that's what happened. And that is what is happening. Because everyone who is believing in the Lord Jesus Christ as their Savior has new life. And this new life comes out of the death and the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. The eternal plan that was executed so that the wrath upon sin could be meted out and justice could be born. And as we... Towards the end of this Gospel of John, as we come towards the end of this account here of the resurrection, we should be asking ourselves, as John is pointing us to, and as I trust the Holy Spirit is pointing you to, do you believe that Jesus is the Christ? This is a big question. This is a question that this passage is asking to you. Do you believe that that tomb is empty? Do you believe that Christ has risen from the dead? Do you believe that Jesus is the Son of God? Do you? If I asked the devil, he would say, I believe. You see, John takes us a bit further into this journey because believing is just not an assent of saying those are the facts. 
Believing is an action word. He says that you may believe in Jesus and that by believing, there's an action that needs to take place here. There needs to be an act of faith. And that's what John is wanting his readers to come to. He's wanting them to come to a a position of believing and believing in Jesus and his life and his death and his resurrection that we may have everlasting life. That we may have life in his name. And so I'm taking this question further. Are you believing? Is there a living faith in you that is trusting in the Lord Jesus Christ as your Savior? So despite your sin and your failure, you know that you're going to raise again and you're going to glory to be not because of what you've done and not because of your faith, but because Jesus died and rose for you. Some of you one day, God willing, you're going to go back home. You're going to go back home to to Africa, to Nigeria, to the UK, to another part of the world. Any of you Africans, when you go back, you don't want to go back empty, do you? I've I've heard you say it. I can't go back empty. I need at least a degree. A degree and a master's. A degree and a PhD. A degree, a master's and a PhD in a large bank account. Then I can go back because I'm not going back. Empty. Empty is not the end. We need to come to be emptied. That all those things that the world holds so dear. We need to come to the point that Mary was at. That a whole if revolved that Christ who saved her. You see, empty is not the end. Not believing is. Not believing haven't had a beginning. And so this Easter, as we've I want to ask you again. Are you believing? Because if you're not, totally and utterly empty. And unless you come to the Lord now, repent and call on his name and become one who believing in Christ, you will remain empty. of tomorrow to fill that emptiness. Today, right now, is your moment to call on the Lord. And if you have done that, now is the time to rejoice in the living Savior.